A lot of names come to mind when we think of people who have shaped New York City history. John D. Rockefeller, Edith Wharton, Robert Moses. But there are many names you might not know. And too many of those names belong to people of color. Do you know the name of the person who helped desegregate New York City public transportation? What about the person who helped invent the light bulb with Thomas Edison? Did you know that New York City was home to the first black doctor in the United States? Do you know his name? This is You Should Know Their Names. I'm George Bolarki. And I'm Maddie Bristow. In this next hour, we'll walk you through the remarkable stories of black New Yorkers whose names we think you should know. Some of America's most profound literature and writings came during the American Revolution, establishing the country's newly found independent identity. But one name that doesn't appear frequently in United States literature is Jupiter Hammond. He's considered one of the founders of African-American literature in the United States. We talked with Lauren Brinkat, the curator of Preservation Long Island, to find out more on Jupiter's life. Jupiter Hammond is considered one of the founders of African-American literature. He was born into slavery on Long Island in 1711 and is one of our nation's first earliest published writers. And he's writing through this critical moment in American history during the American Revolution and into the founding of the United States. He was enslaved for the majority of his life. We have no concrete records that indicate that he was ever freed, although we suspect that he gained his freedom very late into in his life. He passed away just before 1806, so he was in his 90s, and it's towards the very end of his life that we believe that he gained his freedom. Hammond was enslaved to Henry Lloyd and then to his son, Joseph Lloyd, after Henry's passing. It was not illegal for slaves to be educated in New York in the 18th century, so Hammond was most likely educated alongside Joseph Floyd. He received an education that was most likely more in-depth than what most white New Yorkers received. Hammond spent most of his time on Long Island with the Lloyd family, but in 1776, Joseph Lloyd and Jupiter Hammond were forced to flee to Connecticut after the Battle of Long Island. Hammond produced many writings in exile in Connecticut. We also talked with Alexandra Wolf, the executive director of Preservation Long Island. She explains the dynamics of where Hammond lived on Long Island. Jupiter Hammond actually lived in two houses in Lloyd uh, Neck. So Lloyd Neck is a peninsula off the northern coast of Long Island. It's uh, on the western end of Suffolk County. Jupiter was born at the Henry Lloyd house. So this was Joseph's father. And it was a small, like this was the first manor house that was built on the larger estate. Joseph and Jupiter are actually born in the same year. We suspect that they were educated together, perhaps. And then when Henry Lloyd dies, Jupiter becomes the property of Joseph Lloyd. And the second house, the Joseph Lloyd house, is built around uh, 1767, 68. Jupiter and Joseph take up residence there. So... The Joseph Lloyd Manor House is where he lived in his older life. One of his most influential works was his address to the Negroes of the state of New York, an essay about slavery. Hammond wrote it while he was enslaved on Long Island. And it's really fascinating to consider why his essay on slavery was never published. It was almost you know, too radical. It, his, it is his most pointed critique of slavery. So something that presumably his white enslavers would not be comfortable with allowing to be printed. His works are also deeply religious too. His writings reflect his Christian values. And it's interesting, he wrote an address to the Negroes in the state of New York, his most significant piece while enslaved at Joseph Floyd Manor. And it is addressed to the African Society. And the African Society is the first Black organization in New York City, and it is an address to the people of color, and he addresses the African nation. So there is a lot of subtext there, a lot of reading between the lines in which he uses the language of Christianity, a faith that is you know, bestowed upon him by his enslavers to communicate with Black New Yorkers and uses the language of religious virtue and morality to, in a way, advocate for Black New Yorkers to be considered, you know, worthy citizens of New York. And this is 1786. This is 
before any gradual emancipation laws are passed in New York. This is two years before New York outlaws the importation of enslaved people from out of the state. He has a difficult time reconciling, you know, his condition as an enslaved person with his, you know, personal conviction that slavery was a sin. And he, you know, strongly believes in God's will and has a hard time, you know, he grapples with how God could allow slavery to exist. And there's this really powerful line in his essay on slavery where he says, dark and dismal was the day when slavery began. All humble thoughts were put away then slaves are made by man. Lauren says that it's incredible that Long Island is home to such an important writer and poet. A writer who lived through and wrote about one of the most important times in American history. It's fascinating to come to this realization that this really significant, curious intellectual commentator of this founding moment in our history was born on Long Island and is so instrumental to understanding African-American literature and that he is connected to a place that was connected to a global world and that he's living through this period where the United States is just coming into existence and grappling with these ideas of liberty and freedom and is living through this period also of a gradual emancipation. And it's fascinating to think of enslavement in New York. During the colonial period, Long Island had the largest enslaved population anywhere in the North. And New York was the second to last state in the North to institute any sort of emancipation laws. And so we often don't think about slavery when we talk about New York, but New York was so deeply invested in this dehumanizing economic institution that enslaved people. Uh, and so it's fascinating for me to think about him living in this place during this time and how amazing it is that we have his perspective. We have his voice as he is commentating on all of this that is transpiring around him. It's as if if you don't have that special interest and if you're not, if you're not going down the route to specialize in this subject matter, you're not getting it in the general curriculum to prepare you as a citizen of the United States, you know? And talking about how we teach slavery, curriculums often don't address that you can't talk about American history without talking about enslavement and that slavery was the economic engine that propelled New York and American prosperity. And so we don't think about enslavement when we think about the North and we think about New York, but Joseph Floyd Manor, the, which was a part of the Manor of Queens Village, this 3,000 acre agricultural state was a plantation. It was a Northern plantation, um, not in the sense that we think about plantations in the South during the 19th century, but a provisioning plantation that supplied produce goods for the sugar plantations in the West Indies. So it was this integral component to this economic machine that relied upon the enslavement of untold numbers of peoples of African descent in the West Indies during the early colonial period. Let's fast forward to 1813 and talk about Dr. James McCune Smith. He was the first black doctor in the United States, and he was a prominent abolitionist in New York City. We talked with Alice Stevenson, the vice president and director for the Domena Children's History Museum, which is part of the New York Historical Society. He was born in the early 1800s. He lived to just after the passing of the 13th Amendment. Um, and the span of his life was one that incredible change happened in New York City and in the country. He was born to a woman who grew up enslaved. She self-emancipated. Her name was Lavinia. She comes from South Carolina. And they end up in New York. And we're not sure how she got up there. Did she escape? Was she, you know, part of a different process that got her there? He grows up in New York City and attends the African Free Schools. These were schools that were set up um, in the 19th century um, by white educators, and they were specifically made to essentially assimilate black children. 
And part of the goal there was to give them skills that would help them succeed and get ahead in, in the world of New York. So obviously, it's largely it's a white world that they're assimilating into. We learned from Alice that there were a few paths for careers open to Black men and women. Boys learned a lot of skills that would help them become sailors or blacksmiths. Girls learned housekeeping, sewing, and other things that would prepare them for a career working in people's houses. Even though New York City at the time when he was young was not a free city yet, 1827 is the end of the like gradual emancipation that happens in New York City. And James McCune Smith grows up in a city that in many ways is incredibly changed and there are opportunities for him that didn't exist decades prior. But in many ways, it's a, you know, it's an incredibly racist city. It's a city that the economy is entirely buoyed by the institution of slavery in the United States, both through goods that are coming through New York City and through the business of insurance, insuring slaves, insuring people. And his day-to-day life, you know, he has classmates from the African Free School and it's downtown. It was at 2 Mulberry Street. While at school, McCune Smith focused heavily on penmanship, drawing, and other skills. His acceleration at writing and penmanship led him to deliver an address at just 11 years old to the African Free School to welcome the French general Marquis de Lafayette. And then obviously there are a lot of real limitations to what, what potential he has. The African free schools are, it's an incredible moment in New York's history and the country's history too, where you see these kind of um, efforts popping up that we would maybe qualify as social services. Children's Aid Society is another example of this that are problematic in, in many ways. James McCain Smith attended this school. The school's focused a lot on penmanship, on drawing, as well as the other school uh, skills that I mentioned. And one of the wonderful uh, moments that we focus on in the Demented Children's History Museum is a moment when James McCune Smith as an 11-year-old, delivers uh, an address to the Marquis de Lafayette. He's dropped the term Marquis at that point. It's many decades after his service in the American Revolution and after, obviously, the French Revolution. Um, and he, he's visiting New York, and he's someone who's, who works on, throughout his life, the abolishment of the institution of slavery and so he visits the African Free School and James McCune Smith kind of recites this speech to him. And then when he finishes up at African Free School, he becomes a blacksmith apprentice in a, in a blacksmith, you know, shop. And that's, you know, the route that many professionals would go through at that point. Obviously, it's an apprenticeship and you hope to, to move up the ladder and learn more skills and then eventually be able to do work yourself. He is also part of the St. Philip's African Episcopal Church, led by the Reverend Peter Williams Jr. So this is a, a major figure in New York, a major abolitionist figure in New York. And he, he really encourages James McCune Smith to continue his education. It's not that the African Free School wasn't interested in seeing James McCune Smith go further, but they were very much in the mindset of like, here are the skills you can get as a Black child, a you know, Black youth. And then here's the path you can take. And it was, it was a pretty prescribed route. People within McCune Smith's parish saw potential in him. They gave him books that helped him learn Latin and Greek. They even raised enough money to send him to university to study medicine, but not to a university in the United States. Now, McCune Smith cannot go to university in the United States because he's Black. He applies to two, and he's turned down in both because of his race. He eventually travels to um, Glasgow. He attends the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And again, it was this community of people through the church who helped raise the money to, to get him to go. And that's in the 1830s. He concludes his studies there. He comes back. And he is a rarity in many ways at that moment. There are very few people, white or Black or or anything, who have been university trained to be a physician. Most people, similar to being a blacksmith, you become an apprentice, maybe you work an apothecary, and you kind of get up the ladder that way, and then you, you put out your shingle and you start practicing. So James McCune Smith is in an incredible position. He can serve people and say, I, I have a degree for this. I have a medical degree. And so he, he opens his business. He serves whites and blacks of New York. McCune Smith is also well known for his work at the Colored Orphans Asylum, where he cared for children of color and served as the leading physician for over 20 years. The fascinating thing that I think James McCune Smith brings to the city is that he is both this dedicated physician and really is at the forefront of medicine at the time. He's still doing things like putting leeches on people or getting rid of bad blood and things like that. But he also very deeply believes in scientific process for deciding on what kind of medical procedures can happen. He, he likes to look at statistics 
He actually is part of a study that looks at, this sounds crazy to say, but proving that the institution of slavery and being enslaved shortens your life. This was something that was not broadly accepted. McCune-Smith also worked as an abolitionist and worked with other prominent leaders like Frederick Douglass. James McCune-Smith, he wrote the introduction to My Bondage, My Freedom by Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass called him one of the greatest influences on his life. James McCune-Smith is part of a whole team of kind of abolitionists in New York City, um, Henry Highland Garnet, James Pennington. Um, McCune-Smith believes deeply in immediate emancipation and full equality for Black Americans. And, and there were definitely abolitionists and Black abolitionists who felt, you know, we need to leave the United States. We need to go, you know, Liberia is being formed at that time. So James McKean Smith is greatly involved in those intellectual conversations when the Fugitive Slave Act is passed. That's at a moment where, you know, obviously the abolitionist movement as a whole really um, is energized. And James McKean Smith is part of that, too. With James Pennington, he's part of an effort to desegregate the public transportation in New York City. And a, a way that this intersects with his other work is he used to walk from his, where he lived in downtown New York, to the Colored Orphan Asylum every day because he could not ride on public transportation. So that's a six to seven mile walk. And finally, the Colored Orphan Asylum um, ended up getting him a private uh, carriage to do it because they didn't want him to have to walk that distance. But that's something, you know, here's this person who has such accolades, he's in many ways a child of the city. You know, we talk about people who kind of are born in New York and grow up and have great impact on the city. He's a child of the city and he's not allowed on the public transportation. And, and so he's part of an effort to, to desegregate it, which they were successful in doing. So again, I kind of see James McKean Smith as just this incredible uh, merging of political life, personal life, professional life, and just how these are so deeply intertwined and, and so greatly benefit each other. The work that he does medically is informed by his work on racism, fighting the institution of slavery, and it's better for it. It's important to note that even though James McCune Smith was the first Black doctor in the United States and the first Black American to own a pharmacy in the country, he was never admitted to the American Medical Association because of his race. The Colored Orphan Asylum, where he did most of his work, was burned to the ground during the draft riots, but no children were harmed. If given the chance to ask him anything, Alice said she would ask McCune Smith about his work with the Colored Orphan Asylum. I think that the work that he did with the Colored Orphan Asylum has been most fascinating to me with my work with the Children's History Museum. Because part of the challenges with talking about our visitors who come through the door, talking with kids about the past is, we want to be able to talk about what people's childhoods were like in the past. And we have very few records about that. And certainly once you start moving away from wealthy white families, you have even less and less of a record. And when we were putting together part of the exhibition on the Colored Orphan Asylum and James McCune Smith's work with it, we struggled with representing what daily life was like for the kids. We knew that they, you know, had I got sick occasionally from cholera, tuberculosis, and we knew that the orphan asylum was burned down. We knew these, you know, traumatic incidents that would happen, but we were really focused on what were the joyful moments, what were the moments that that the kids were playing, what kinds of things did they play with, and I think because James McCune Smith did focus on, again, getting them outside, getting them moving, and I would love to ask him about, you know, what daily life was like there, not necessarily treating the kids, but you know, what was it like being there, visiting those children, talking to them? What were their lives like? I would love to know that. Now let's jump to the late 1800s. If you were Black in New York City, you couldn't take the trolley. Many Americans are familiar with the story of Rosa Parks. But in 1854, a Black New Yorker by the name of Elizabeth Jennings played an instrumental role in desegregating the New York City public transit system. Jennings was born in 1827 to a family of firsts. Her father was the first African-American to receive a patent in the United States. Her mother and sisters were members of a literary society that raised money to free slaves. And her brothers were abolitionists and friends with Frederick Douglass and William Nell in Boston, Massachusetts. Jennings herself opened the first kindergarten for black children in the United States in 1895 and was believed to be one of the first female teachers to teach while being married. To hear more about the life of Elizabeth Jennings, we turn to Jerry McArenda. He's the author of America's First Freedom Rider, Elizabeth Jennings, 
Chester A. Arthur in the early fights for civil rights. Well, she was a 27-year-old school teacher, and it was on Sunday, July 16th, 1854. Her and her friend, Sarah Adams, took a Chatham Street horse car bound for church where Elizabeth was the choir leader and the organist, two jobs that were definitely male-dominated at that time period. And when she refused to leave the car because they were Black, the conductor assaulted and threw her off. And she just ran back on the car and said, you're not going to throw me off. I paid, I paid my nickel. And the car races down the, the street to about where Walker Street was at the time. Then a policeman helps accost her again and throw her off. And she sued and won a landmark case that opened all transit services for all New Yorkers. The week when this happened was typical for summer in New York City. The city was in the middle of a horrible heat wave that had started the week before. People had what they called brain fever, which today is what we call heat exhaustion. It was so hot that horses in front of carriages were dying in the streets. Everything was shut down, but yet Elizabeth, being the diligent worker that she was and wanting to lead the choir, puts on her seven layers of petticoats, goes out in the street with a friend, and of course, Women certainly wouldn't travel alone, and if you were African-American and traveling alone on the streets, there was a good chance that you may be kidnapped. So it was under those conditions where they said, well, we can't make the two-mile walk to the church. It's too hot. There's a streetcar coming. Let's get on it. That's how it all ensued. And just to put a little more context on the incident, at one point it was settled that the conductor was going to let her on because nobody, there was only about 10 people on the car at the time. Nobody objected to her being there. They all, you know, it was a hot day. Everybody was wanted to get to where they were going. So he said, all right, I'll let you on. But then he had to end with making some snide remark. And she came back at him and said, look, you're a, a good for nothing for picking on genteel people when they're going to church. And I'm not going to let you talk to me like that. And the next thing you know, they're, they're, they're having a fight and they're, they're trying to pull her off the streetcar. And, and she does get badly hurt. You know, I know I've read some things where they said, well, you know, they kind of pushed her off. I mean, she was thrown off and she was hurt so badly that when she arrives home, she was unable to go to work. She was unable to go to the community meeting that they had at the church the next night. And her father had to write the letter that he took down the letter from her of what happened at that church. After he reads the letter, her father says to the crowd that gathered, well, what is it do you guys want? And she said, first, the railroad needs to apologize to one of our brightest young citizens who's a professional teacher and that she would be treated like that. Second, they should be made to pay for all her injuries, that this is ridiculous. And the third, and the thing that the father felt was most important, that finally, they should recognize the rights of African Americans to ride with everybody else. They are citizens. This is public transportation. This kind of thing has to stop. And that's when he decided to bring them to court. Jerry says the incidents likely caused a lot of surprise, but the real attention was paid to Jennings' trial. Her lawyer was Chester A. Arthur, the future 21st president of the United States. This would become his first case as a lawyer. He was able to move the trial from Manhattan, where the 3rd Avenue Railroad was headquartered, to the new Supreme Court in Brooklyn. This made it become a state case, and by doing so, he took away the home field advantage of the railroad. Elizabeth Jennings' story is one that is very reflective of Rosa Parks, an activist known for her role in the bus boycotts in Montgomery, Alabama during the Civil Rights Movement. It's almost hard to believe that Jennings' story played out a hundred years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Alabama to a white passenger. I would want to ask how she felt about having a book written about her. And I think, again, I, there's no diaries that say, you know, that uh, what what I'm going to say is based on anything, but I just, my sense is that she would have thought, oh, to write, and, and then I think there's a real 19th century way of looking at things that, oh, to write a book about me, that, oh, that's ridiculous. But I think because I focused more on the family aspect of it, not just as a biography of just her, I think she would be, be happy that her father and brothers and parents and, and all the people that they associated with were, were remembered in the book. So hopefully. <laughs> Jennings promoted education to young children through her work as a teacher. She felt that one of the best ways to contribute to her community was through teaching, leading her to open a kindergarten in her home. She starts to realize that, you know, knowledge is the only way our children are going to be able to improve in, in their communities. And she studied uh, this guy, Frederick Fogel, who actually could say invented or started kindergartens over in Germany. And she said, well, why can't our kids have this? They should learn to love learning the way the white children are. She had a three-story house on 41st Street. They wanted it for free and they couldn't find a building. And she says, well, use my first floor. 
my family can live on the, the second and, and third floor. The kids can play in the yard and have a garden and, and what have you. And it turns out when you read about the things that happened, it was more than just a kindergarten. It was like a community center. She had sewing classes on Saturdays, things on bookkeeping, uh, other kind of classes. They had a, a, a lending library that they called the Elizabeth Jennings Graham Lending Library. And that school went on uh, much longer than she, she dies in 1901. Uh, that school was still listed as on the books in uh, 1916. And they even off, opened up another one that uh, photojournalist uh, Jacob Reese, who got interested in what they were doing, he, he was walking around. He says, you know, I saw another building up on 60th Street that you guys could open another kindergarten. And they open it up. And even the white parents in the, in the uh, area said, you know, would you mind if our kids go to your school? So she did have a lasting impression of how do you measure these kids growing up and learning? It's, it's something you can't really measure, but you know, I think she kind of, uh, when she passes on, she's, she's left a legacy. For most people, Thomas Edison is a household name thanks to his invention of the light bulb. But without the help of one New Yorker, the light might not have switched for Edison. Louis Latimer was a self-taught inventor, draftsman, and patent lawyer. He was born on September 4, 1848 in Massachusetts. Known for creating carbon filament, which is used in light bulbs, Louis received a patent for the incandescent bulb in 1882. This arguably played a key role in the development of the light bulb that we know and use today. We talked with Alex Unthank, the education associate at the Lewis Latimer House Museum in Queens, New York, about Latimer's life and legacy, starting with his family history. So he has a really interesting family history. Um, Lewis is the son of fugitive slaves who escaped from Norfolk, Virginia before he was born. So his father, George Latimer, was mixed race. So he's the son of a slave holder and a slave. So he was, you know, raised enslaved. He was worked on multiple different plantations and around Norfolk, Virginia, before meeting Lewis's mother, another woman who was enslaved named Rebecca Smith. The two met. They were allowed to marry, although they obviously had a lot of restrictions placed on their relationship. They're enslaved in different places, so, you know, they basically only have a small amount of time during each day which to be together. So at a certain point, once they realized that they were going to have their first child, they started to seriously consider escaping. And so at that point, they plotted their escape. Lewis's father, George, was very fair-skinned, so he actually was able to dress as a slaveholder would have dressed and she dressed as his enslaved person. And the two of them were able to like hide in plain sight in that way, making their way from Virginia to Massachusetts. But once they get to Massachusetts, actually, George is recognized by an associate of the slaveholder. So at this point in Massachusetts and you know through a lot of the Northern free states, there was a lot of, you know, basically a secondary economy of slave catching. So what would have preceded their journey would have been ads for their capture, which we actually have copies of at the museum. So he is recognized and immediately put into prison. And his case ends up being wrapped up in the abolitionist movement that is underway in Massachusetts at the time. And he actually winds up being one of the earlier cases that Frederick Douglass works on. Lewis only received about a fourth grade education. His mother sent him and his brother to farm school, but both sons ended up running away, and she didn't make them go back. But during the Civil War, in 1864, Lewis lied about his age in order to enlist with the Union side. He ended up joining the Navy, where he received much more of a formal education but he was not sent into battle and was honorably discharged. He began his career at a patent law firm called Crosby and Gold, starting as an office boy, and taught himself the art of making drafts for patents. After about 11 years, Latimer left and started working for an inventor named Hiram Maxim. After about three years there, Latimer traveled to a light bulb convention in England, where he met Thomas Edison. But when he returned to the U.S., he learned that he was out of a job at Maxim and went to work for Edison in 1884. 
but two years prior in 1882, Latimer received a patent for the process of manufacturing carbons, which made carbon filament for the light bulb. So is it fair to say that without Latimer, we might not have the lights we have today? I think that's pretty fair to say, or lights would definitely look very different. The development of the carbon filament for the light bulb made the light bulb actually practical and affordable. So for Latimer, it was really important that this technology be available for all. That was something that he was really passionate about always in his work, the availability of of technologies. Latimer was compensated for his work, but it was certainly not the same amount that his white colleagues were making. And being a Black inventor, he faced overt racism and discrimination in his field. So for example, he does discuss when he's sent to London by uh, his employer at the time, Hiram Maxim, to oversee a new light bulb factory. He's sent there for a year. He goes with his family. And during that time, he's treated incredibly poorly. So he's dealing with people in the workplace not thinking that he is at the station he's at. So no one is listening to him. People are not treating him with respect. In London, people have a very hard time taking orders from a black man. Meanwhile, he's invented the technology that he's explaining for them how to use. So, you know, that is, I can only imagine that one of the more frustrating parts of his job is having to constantly deal with people assuming that he is, you know, making assumptions about who he is and having to also, you're not necessarily in a position where you can feel comfortable correcting somebody because there are repercussions for talking out. So how is he navigating these spaces with immense grace? But that is something he does speak about the way that he's mistreated in England. And so that would be an example. And while we're familiar with Edison's name, which is prominently featured in museums, Latimer's name has been largely left out of the conversation. Well, there are two Edison museums. So there is one where he is featured not prominently, and I should say definitely not prominently at either of them, but at the one that's like the larger museum where the one that's run by the National Park Service, he is recognized. They have some information on him, but definitely not much comparatively. I would say, underrepresented. Latimer did marry and have two daughters with whom he shared his love of fine arts at their home in Flushing, Queens. One daughter went on to become a concert pianist and his other daughter, a visual artist. But it does make you think, if he had more resources, would he have gone into the arts rather than inventing? I think the legacy is really that he was very dedicated to improving the quality of life for all Americans and making sure that the technology that he created was available for all. I think in one quote he says, for even the humblest of homes. So he was really interested in making sure that everyone had light and electricity. And then from there, just continuing to develop his craft. And, you know, he continued to invent things on his own independently throughout his entire life. And they're all things that are about improving the quality of life. So I think that that would be his legacy. Now let's step into the Harlem Renaissance. It's the 1920s in Harlem, New York, and a woman originally from Philadelphia takes the stage at a speakeasy, dressed in a masculine top hat and tailcoat, singing songs that would make anyone blush. The performer is Gladys Bentley. She's an entertainer who rose to fame during the Harlem Renaissance and was known for singing original blues songs and reworking the lyrics to popular songs to her liking. This skyrocketed her popularity, 
and she became one of the most well-known black lesbian performers of the time. Dwantelin Reese is an associate director for curatorial affairs and serves as curator of music and performing arts at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Gladys Bentley was a musician and entertainer who rose to prominence during the Harlem Renaissance. She was also one of the first uh, queer African-American performers to appear publicly on the popular stage. And really at that time in the 20s and 30s, she was really a pioneer who established her presence and her individuality and really set the landscape for many people who were to follow even today. She's originally from Philadelphia. She was born and raised in Philadelphia. She made her way to New York and Harlem at the age of 16 and 17. When she speaks of her childhood, she always had a sense that she was different, that she was uh, attracted to girls. Uh, She dressed in masculine clothing, so to speak. And there were many attempts by her family to kind of move her away from these tendencies. So this was something that she had to face early on. So that was part of her struggle within her own family, with her own community, and eventually left when she was old enough to find her way to Harlem, as many other potential entertainers, musicians, artists did at the same time. Bentley got her start performing in Harlem as a piano player for local clubs. Dressed in a top hat and tailcoat, She performed well-known blues songs, but added her own flair to them. She was quite outrageous. She would flirt with audience members, same-sex members, and really developed a following in an arena and an environment that was open to exploration. If you know much about the history of Harlem in that time, people were exploring their identities, their sexuality. There was an essence where people were kind of living against the grains, you know, it was the time of prohibition and Harlem really became a place where audiences, not only people in Harlem, but white audiences would come to experience the different wild exotic lifestyle. And you can't see quotes on an audio, but qualifying those terms of how people perceived what was going on in Harlem at the time. In Harlem, it was a much more welcoming community Of course, you're going to have some detractors. I mean, there are different communities. There are no monolithic African-American community. And so while she was in a circle of Harlem, it was supported, it was entertaining. But in other circles, religious circles and the the church, there there was always this tension between the popular arts and, and the more respectability politics, so to speak. So you have those things kind of coinciding at the same time. So I think at that time, she was much more of an environment that was supportive, so that didn't impact her as much. As the Harlem Renaissance wound down, Bentley did eventually make her way to California as American culture began to change. As you get into the 40s and 50s, America really changes, and there's there's much less tolerance of different behaviors, different lifestyles. And while she was able to perform for a while, In California, as as the McCarthy era took force, the openness and flexibility uh, was not as available to her. And so it it not only cut her off from expressing her own individuality, but her lifeline and gainful employment. Eventually, in the early 50s, Gladys Bentley she had married, and there was a very well-known article in Ebony Magazine in which she had renounced her homosexuality and said that she was a woman again. So she talked about her journey to finding her womanness again, and but also talked about it in the context of her childhood and the, the situation she found herself in. So while she was championing one thing and, and showing how she had just changed her life, she had married, she was going to go into the ministry, It's also an interesting article to read because in the story of her life, she really talks about the context of 
tolerance and understanding and how that wasn't there for her. She's a very complicated persona in that regard as she reacts to the changing times and how she sees herself and how she has to present herself in order to function in society. And yet even today, the impact of Gladys Bentley is reflected in current artists. She has set the tone for a lot of artists, you know, asserting who they are. You know, I think of, you know, she's not in the style of Gladys Bentley, but I think of Janelle Monet. I think of artists who play around with, with concepts and, and perception and image. Uh, I, you know, one of the things about contemporary artists, so many of them can do the things that so many of us couldn't even do 20, 25 years ago. They're upfront about it and they don't care what people say. They're expressing who they are. And, you know, it's not even just by artists. I think particularly for women, you know, women expressing their sexuality, owning their sexuality. I mean, you can even talk about the, the latest thing with Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion and the uproar that's caused, you know, what someone's sexual orientation to be comfortable like that. That's, that's not only a change in, in African-American communities, but how women are allowed to present themselves. You know, how dare you make those statements and be so upfront about who you are and recognizing every element of yourself. I mean, it's hard to think of an artist right now who's under 40 who doesn't play with those stereotypes. And, you know, for, for some of us, it's a little off-putting, but at the same time, why not? And as far as her legacy, Dwandalin thinks Bentley's commitment to her individuality defined her as a performer. Dwandalin says that during a time when representation matters and is much needed, it is important to elevate heroes of the past like Bentley. I think of her legacy, you know, I think for women, um, whether you're gay or straight, there is a certain type of individuality and assertiveness in expressing who you are. And, you know, this is pre-feminism as we know it as of today, but to really stand strong and have no holds barred and to define who you are as a performer, to take on a role that you control the stage, you control the narrative, regardless of what people say, is a message that still looms large for you know, not only women, but all people today. And when you think about the times of that period, you, you, it's really difficult for me to imagine what that really meant when the larger society is not necessarily with you and where you have the comfort. I mean, the Harlem Renaissance brought that comfort because it was a flowering of, of cultural um, output that actually provided... Um, an environment for her to flourish in that way. But times change. And just as you make one step forward, there's two steps back. But I think to me, it, it shows that, that a sense of agency has always been there, you know, with Gladys Bentley or pre-Gladys Bentley. And that there are people whose footsteps we follow in and can continue to learn from. That's it, gorilla. A woman killer, and I ought to know He mistreats me, knots and beats me Till I love him so Cause he's got that something That I need so bad It's safe to say that most tennis fans know the superstar duo of sisters, Serena and Venus Williams, and their incredible achievements in the sport. Serena holds 23 Grand Slam titles, the most of any player during the Open era, and Venus is the first black woman to rank number one in the sport during the Open era. But many people might not know the name of the first black woman to rank number one in tennis in the history of the sport. Althea Gibson. Althea Gibson is a legendary tennis player who also held her own in professional golf. Her interest in tennis blossomed after she and her family moved to Harlem. We talked with Yannick Rice-Lamb, professor of journalism at Howard University, co-author of Born to Win, the authorized biography of Althea Gibson, and co-founder of FearsForBlackWomen.com. Althea Gibson was one of the greatest tennis players, and she paved the way for a lot of people came behind her, like Arthur Ashe and Serena 
and Venus Williams and some of the young women who are playing today. And she was kind of a renaissance woman. She, woman. she didn't just play tennis, she also played golf and basketball and she excelled at almost any sport that she tried. She was born in Silver, South Carolina, which is a really tiny town in the South. And her family migrated to the New York area and when she was about three. And she played paddle ball in the street and stickball. Uh, the police athletic league would, would close off blocks so children could play. And one of the people who organized some of the games, he noticed how talented she was. And he introduced her to some of the members of the Cosmopolitan Tennis Club, which was an all black club in Harlem at the time. And she played with adults as a 12 year old and they recognized her talent. And then they got her involved with the American Tennis Association which is the first and oldest black tennis um, organization that still exists. From there, she, she won 10 straight ATA tournaments and two doctors kind of took her under um, their wing and she stayed with them in Wilmington, North Carolina and in Virginia to train so that they could, you know, kind of groom her for playing in the U.S. Nationals and also in Wimbledon. So, and also to groom her in terms of hearing herself during a segregated era at the time because she integrated tennis the same way that Jackie Robinson integrated baseball. So there was a lot of racial tension, a lot of things riding on her shoulders at the time. Gibson was a natural athlete. Growing up in Harlem, she played basketball, shot pool, and boxed. Her father coached her in boxing, even sparring with her for practice. But ultimately, tennis became her sport of choice and later golf as well. She was the first Black woman to integrate the Ladies Professional Golf Association in 1964 when she was just 37 years old. She was able to reach the top 50, but not much higher, and did not win any major titles like she did in tennis. But it's extraordinary that she was able to break barriers in both of these major leagues. In her lifetime, she won over 100 titles. And then finally, in 56, she won the French Open. And she won the first of her three uh, Wimbledon doubles. And then in 57 and 58, she won back-to-back titles at the U.S. Um, Nationals and Wimbledon. And then in the early 2000s, Venus Williams repeated that feat, but no one had done that since then. No African-American tennis player, certainly. I guess one of the, the highlights for her when she won uh, Wimbledon and the U.S. Nationals was that the Queen of England, she attended uh, Wimbledon for the first time. And so she presented her award to her. So she got a big kick out of that. She also performed somewhere that night during the celebration so because she was a singer. And then when she came back to the States, people were lobbying behind the scenes to make sure she got a ticket ticker tape parade in lower Manhattan. Um, so she was the first African-American female athlete to have that honor. And um, prop, maybe, perhaps only the second Black athlete behind Jesse Owens to have that honor. So that was really big for her and her family. And then also just, um, and even more than that, like returning home to Harlem and everybody coming out of their apartments and spilling out into the streets to, you know, celebrate and salute her. So she really got a kick out of that as well. But like many of the stories we've heard, Gibson's success was not without adversity and racism. Female tennis players were not paid nearly as much as male players, and as a Black woman, Althea was subjected to even further discrimination. There were also occasions where she was prevented from staying in the same hotels as other athletes, and as a result was forced to sleep in her car. In some matches, it took longer for her to get matched with other players because of her race. So she, she faced a lot of, of racism and a lot of people expecting the least of her. Some people like Alice Marble, who was a tennis player, a white tennis player, she came to her defense and kind of shamed the tennis circles into accepting her and things like that. But she tried to not let it phase her. She said she was only focusing on the little ball. And um, which is kind of remarkable that she was able to do that because she was known for having a fiery temper. But a lot of people kind of coached her to not fall into the trap of responding to some of the things that were coming her way and to stay focused on the game. So she tried to do that to the point that some people felt that she could have been more of a champion for African-Americans. But she was really, you know, just really focused on playing and winning. After she retired from tennis, Gibson went on to mentor and coach other athletes and served as the athletic commissioner of the state of New Jersey for some time. She even recorded an album and had a role in the movie The Horse Soldiers with John Wayne. But the story of her breakthroughs in tennis and checking off so many firsts for Black female players is remarkable and inspirational. 
In the fall of 2019, on the first day of the U.S. Open, the statue of Althea Gibson was unveiled at Arthur Ashe Stadium in Queens, New York. It sits as a permanent fixture and constant reminder of her inspiring story. She would want to be remembered as someone who gave her best, and she really liked the title of the book, Born to Win. And, you know, she, she just was a born athlete, and she gave it her all. And she was really thrilled to see other people come up behind her and excel in, in the sport that she loved. For another name we think you should know, let's step into the world of dance, ballet more specifically. It's the middle of the 20th century, and New York City is becoming a haven for the arts. This is the story of Arthur Mitchell, a Black American ballet dancer and one of the founders of the Dance Theater of Harlem. We talked with Lynn Garofola, Professor Emerita of Dance at Barnard College and curator of the exhibition, Arthur Mitchell Harlem's Ballet Trailblazer at Columbia University. Arthur Mitchell is really the pioneer of ballet who comes from Harlem. There were other pioneers, but I think he really did more for ballet within the African-American community than anyone else. He was born in Harlem in 1934. His parents had come up from Savannah, Georgia. His father was a riveter, and he worked in Harlem as a building superintendent. So they moved from apartment to apartment to apartment, up and down, until they ended up rather close to where the Dance Theater of Harlem is now on 152nd Street. He went to public schools in the neighborhood, including the same elementary school that Harry Belafonte went. So he wasn't the only famous person to come out of the local public schools in Harlem. And then he began taking his first dance lessons tap dance lessons, and to sing in a glee club when he was 10 years old through the Police Athletic League. And he was also singing in a church choir. And at one of the school dances, when he was in what we would call middle school or junior high school, the teacher, some, some of the teachers and the guidance counselors saw him dancing, you know, just dancing with some of the kids, and said, you know, you really have talent. <laughs> and so they said, well, why don't you audition for the High School of Performing Arts? So he said, well, he found an old vaudevillian who taught him a number. So he sang and he danced. He had his top hat and he was accepted. Now, he had never had any formal, apart from these tap dance classes, he hadn't had anything. And of course, they were teaching ballet and modern dance at the High School of Performing Arts. And he decided he really liked, he wanted to major, ironically, in modern dance. He wanted nothing to do with ballet. He felt that modern dance was more expressive. He could have more soul in it. But then gradually he began studying ballet with Carl Schuch, who later became co-director of the Dance Theater of Harlem with him. He began studying with him at the Catherine Dunham School. Catherine Dunham was a very important concert dance choreographer who had a company, it was an all-black company, and she had us opened a school right after World War II, right in the heart of the theater district. All kinds of theater people studied her technique, but she also offered a lot of ballet classes, and that's really the first place where Arthur Mitchell began studying ballet. When Mitchell graduated from high school, he was offered two scholarships, one to the School of American Ballet, and one to Bennington College. He decided to attend the School of American Ballet because by then he decided he liked ballet, and this was the feeder school for the New York City Ballet. And so he began taking classes for the next several years, working very, very intensely with Carl Schuch, who really became a friend, a private coach, a teacher, a mentor in every sense of the word. And then eventually in 1955, he got the telegram from Lincoln Kirstein, who was co-founder of the New York City Ballet said, would you care to join, would you care to join the New York City Ballet as a full-time member? And that was the key thing. There had been occasionally been African-Americans who had danced a performance, a particular work, a couple of performances, but none had ever had a full-time court of ballet contract. And so that began Mitchell's career with what was arguably the most important American company of that moment. And he remained there until he danced his last performance in 1971. But by then, he was already devoting much of his energy to his other great achievement, apart from himself, 
which was the creation of the Dance Theatre of Harlem. The Dance Theatre of Harlem was groundbreaking. Mitchell trained and recruited dancers who he saw potential in, bringing in dancers from New York and all over the country, investing in the local community and the national community of dancers. As he toured all over the world, Mitchell would visit local dance companies and sit in on rehearsals. He would recruit African-American dancers to come to New York for a summer program. And the Dance Theatre of Harlem toured as well, in both the United States and Europe, performing at various theaters and venues. The Dance Theater of Harlem was the first major nearly all-Black ballet company that lasted for more than a couple of years. There had been previous ones. There was one in Los Angeles. There was another one in New York, but they were smaller. And like most companies, they didn't last too long. But this lasted under Mitchell's artistic direction from late 1968 when they began to give their first performances, although they didn't make their official debut until 1971, until 2004. Now that's a pretty good run. And it wasn't just that Mitchell had a company, he had a school. And the school was immensely important because it had two components. One component was what you might call the community school. If you were a kid and you wanted to study dance, you could take classes there. But even though Mitchell successfully toured the world as a black man, he was not allowed on television. Although on stage, both in the United States and in, in Europe, Mitchell routinely partnered the white ballerinas of the New York City Ballet. He could not do that on network television in the United States. He could do it in Canada, where CBC routinely aired programs of New York City Ballet repertory, and he's prominently featured in those, uh, in those videos. There are some videos from Europe where he did that. And then there are also a number of television programs that he did within an all African-American context, such as Harry Belafonte's specials from the late 1950s and early 1960s. So he was seen on television. He was certainly seen on Broadway and he was certainly seen on the stages of City Center and New York City Ballet, but he could not be seen on national television. He was angry about that. He actually had an interview in the New York Times with the dance critic in 1965 in which he spoke about this. Mitchell received many awards and accolades in his lifetime from both within and outside of the dance community and many from African-American institutions, colleges, and societies. In 1993, he received a Kennedy Center honor, being one of the youngest, and was named a MacArthur Fellow the next year. In 1995, President Clinton awarded him the National Medal of Arts, the nation's highest cultural honor awarded to artists and patrons of the arts. Mitchell leaves behind a legacy rich of support for Black dancers. There were others who opened the door a little bit, but he really threw the door wide open. And he trained a, I would say, three generations of dancers who then went on, uh, some remained associated with Dance Theatre of Harlem, but went on, as dancers tend to do, to open their own studios, to go and teach in colleges, to teach in community centers, to teach in all kinds of other places, creating a very, very large network of African-American ballet people, dance people. And he does form the Dance Theater of Harlem at a very crucial moment of the Black arts movement. Black is beautiful. And I think he was, it was something he believed in, even though we don't think of him as an activist in the ordinary sense of the, of the word. He was constantly active in what he believed in. Arthur Mitchell. We think you should know his name. And all of their names. Jupiter Hammond. Dr. James McCune-Smith. Elizabeth Jennings. Louis Latimer. Gladys Bentley. Althea Gibson. You should know their names, their stories, and their incredible contributions to society. And there are so many more names we all should know. So do your research, read, and learn their names and share their stories. I'm George Bodarkey. I'm Maddie Bristow. Thanks so much for listening. 